welcome. So today I have Michael Ola with me and I'm going to share, we are going to actually jump in on culture and there is so much to say about culture in the workspace. And often we just cringe and think it seems either heavy or we might not have had the best experience. And yet we've been in the mastermind together with Michael last year and there was so much we could bring to the team, Michael could bring by going deeper in culture. And what I want today to really do is to give you the space to start listening to Michael and I will also link the email at the end so if you have any more questions on culture so I'm just going to introduce first Michael so Michael is a master black belt so in terms of competency we talk about organizational change although today we will be really focused on culture Michael has grown up in a small village in Germany he studied abroad in France in Brazil Uh, he's joined a startup. He then moved to forest-based uh, organizations, to American consultancy. And from there, he worked with Asia, with the Americas, with Europe. He's back in Europe. So in terms of innovation and change, we are going to have a great discussion today. Welcome, Michael. Yeah, the Rose. Thank you very much. And uh, so, again, what I really appreciated with Michael and the reason why I really wanted to share with all of you today that discussion is because, obviously, so Michael is a master black belt certified um, expert. You say that this way? Yeah, you can say that certified by those people in the U.S., by the way. Okay. And thank you. And basically, so there is the competency part. And after two decades in leadership, what I really appreciated um, with Michael is alongside with the competency, there is a great ear to listen and to take the time to go deeper into topics. And this is why I really am happy to share that today. So in terms of culture, culture is already a term which is nearly a buzzword. So many of us talk about work culture, right? So when we say, why is it important? So is there anything you would like to add right away in terms of why is culture so important and what can it do for any organization? Yeah, that is a really good starter for us here today, Laurence, I think. Um, well, We all know what culture is about when we go to another country and, well, maybe you would see the Bavarians have the have their particular dresses or having the beer, the way they drink their beer and so on and so forth. I go to Brazil, I see a different culture. Um, that is not really what I would like to talk about today, rather company and organizational culture. So why is that so important to really understand that? If I open newspapers these days, um, I find that people complain, companies complain, they don't find enough experts. In German, we talk, talk about the Fachkräftemangel, so skilled people, scarcity of skilled people. So that on the one side, and then when you talk to those people who are there, 
They tell you about a boring workplace, dull work, uninspiring bosses, and so on and so forth. So what a pity. On the one side, we are lacking people, and on the other side, those people who are there are uninspired. So imagine now you had a place where people are inspired, where they wake up in the morning and say, hey, today I may be able to make a really big and positive impact on my colleagues, on my customer, and so on, and let me try to figure out how today I want to solve, I can solve this and that problem. It would be so much different. And um, what this is all about is the culture of the place. You notice it, maybe not from a picture that they share with you in the annual report, but when you're there, you notice the culture really quickly. Thank you. And I might be diving quite fast, but should we change our culture and when should we do it? Because some people will say, I hear so many changes every two years in organizations. Others say it's high time we do change. So how do you approach it? What would you tell people? Hmm. I think it's a very timely question that you are asking. My impression is when I walk into organizations, they are a bit tired of all these changes. Take, for example, companies in Eastern Germany. Uh, they have 30 years of change behind them. People of my age have still known the old times. They needed to unlearn certain things, learn new stuff. Then they needed to learn English, interact with people from, uh, well, from all over the world, then I don't know, uh, new computer software came along and now we are telling them, hey guys, you know what, all this was just a joke, now comes the real stuff, now you're facing your new uh, competition, which is the AI, now we compete on a global scale and it's a very different game because now the Chinese are doing that and the Americans are doing still something else and so on and so forth. So. My impression is people these days are a bit tired of change and maybe with the example that I have given, understandably so. So they want to protect the culture that they have. They say that, and culture is something valuable, right? When you have a good culture where you feel at home, where you notice you are among your colleagues, it's very good to have that. So maybe before you even think about changing certain aspects of the culture, which might be necessary indeed because of changes out there in the bigger world, maybe before that, a key question is to ask, well, what do we love about the culture we have? What do we think is really valuable? Um, in that culture for all the challenges we are facing. And when you know that, well, then you are probably in a much better position to answer also the question, well, what aspects might we want to change? And you mentioned first before changing, understand what is valuable. How would you go about, because I totally agree it's a fundamental question, 
how would you go about to assess what is valuable in an existing culture before putting everything, as you were saying, upside down and stressing people? Mm -hmm. It's almost a tricky question because I see the following trap um, to focus on one aspect, which I think is very important. It, it must be valuable for the people who live there. Mm -hmm. So that's the obvious part. Um, at the same time, these people want to live and work happily together in that place for a longer period of time. So we also need to look at the outside world. So whatever, whatever we have there must be valuable also in the light of all the external changes. I am not saying that everything needs to be upside down just because we are reorganizing our supply chains, for example. But when we ask that question, what is valuable, we should look at what's happening in the broader world and we should look at our own people inside, what they really value. And they, they can tell you easily what they value about their culture. And the outside world, well, there you would reflect together with them. Okay, here's this trend, here's that other trend. Maybe you shortlist some relevant trends for your organization and then ask them, how should we position ourselves? And quite likely, when they answer that question, um, well, they can already utilize some of the aspects of their culture that they really, truly appreciate and value. True. And I was also thinking in terms of utilizing and also bringing, quote, some fresh blood, new blood, when you have a very, let's say, an organization which is already really well established and you, this organization now wants to have a broader integration with different countries, different nationalities, different cultures coming in. So there's what you maintain and also how you can create a new common ground. Mm -hmm. And that is certainly important. Just with what's going on in the world. Um, well, maybe the way we have seen globalization over the past 30 years or so, that will change. But we are going to stay connected with people all mm -hmm. over the world because some of these challenges are global challenges and we need to figure it out together. So certainly if you have been, let's say, an organization that has mainly worked and has been successful inside Germany, Even if you think that your market focus stays Germany, you would want to embrace people from outside Germany. So maybe if until now you had only German as language inside your organization, you should make a step forward and say, let's also integrate people who do not speak yet the German language. Let's have some meetings also in English. And that is very, very tough. I have seen 
hier one Brazilian lady who came to join a German company just under that premise. Yes, we want to become more international. We want to embrace people from outside. You would be one of the pioneers. It was too much for her and too much burden on her shoulders alone. And after a year or a year and a half, she quit. And now didn't go back to um, to Brazil, but is in Paris. Yeah. So she was. E it was easier for her to integrate into a French-speaking company than into a German company. So we need to and open up, and it can be indeed a challenge. Mm -hmm. As for everyone, because we, every one of us, love our habits, right? We are a creature of routine and habits, and we always go into our automated patterns. True, unless something really changes these habits. Mm -hmm. um, Laurence, if you win in the lottery, chances are something will change in your life and uh, you would easily be kicked out of your daily routine by winning in the lottery. So when there are good reasons, of course people, but when there's something appealing, of course they change their mm -hmm. habits very easily. I like your example. Especially because yeah, I luck. never play. <laughs> I love the example theoretically. And and I totally can apply that uh, at work. And going back to... So there are uh, large um, organizations who are already established, who have this work culture. We also know others who really want to integrate uh, those new cultures. So you were just mentioning indeed one example where I think there was the theoretical want, yet on both parties, the um, putting it into practice was not yet uh, so evident. Other companies are ready in, in the sense that more than one person is there. The teams are, uh, international teams are now working together. And then it's a great place to start with a good foundation where everyone can feel that they relate right to a common culture. Hmm. And the question is, well, what creates this common culture? Because there is an interesting rule of thumb, and you can observe that when you walk into uh, larger organizations. For about every 100 people, you have kind of a local culture. could be that everyone on the first floor is in one tribe, and the people on the second floor are in another tribe. They meet uh, at the water cooler more frequently. Uh, they go out to lunch together, even across departments. Just because the geography, so to say, puts them together, they form a tribe, a, a subculture. So if I was wearing my cap like this, People in the other floor would wear the cap the other way around just to make sure they are part of their own tribe and not part of my tribe. So then the question is, if you um, do not... Well, this is all fine, right? These subcultures are fine. But what kind of overall platform do you create and how you do that? One thing that I see work a lot 
is when the organization is really able to spell out a purpose. I'm not talking now about these grandiose things that you find sometimes on the internet side. Uh, we would want world domination on the internet or we will save the planet by selling our sandwiches here. Um, but if you find, oh, why not stay with the sandwiches? Yeah? So let's, let's take this humble example of a sandwich stand by a train station. Every train station has something like that. And of course, one might think, well, what could be the purpose? Well, who buys these sandwiches? It's people rushing by. Um, they are short of calories because they had a stressful day or they just need a companion, so to say, on their commute back home and they like your sandwich or whatever you have as a companion on that journey. So if you work for that place and mm -hmm. these people have in mind, well, we want to understand how our customers tick here and we want to provide them with the best what they desire. Um, quick sugar shot, maybe. The companion on the, com uh, on the commute, maybe. Then you have a platform and you can have other people join and you would explain to them our job here is to watch out what these people truly want. And you see, they are, they are stressed, they are in a hurry. Sometimes when, I don't know, this and that goes on in the outside world, you notice that in the behavior and that could turn into, well, the purpose to help these people who are walking by. And then you have your platform on top of which all these subcultures mm -hmm. i'm in the burger uh, i'm preparing the burger i am serving the burgers whatever they serve right um so that is probably the, the point to try to create that platform with the purpose that people can sell out And thank you. I love the very pragmatic example of, of, of the sandwich. And if someone says, can you give me an example which is closer to my world? For example, um, let's take an industry of your choice, whether it's trains or pharma or anything, or you, you feel valid for the audience, any industry where you say, okay, uh, as you were saying, people wear the caps on the, every floor or every half floor, depending on how big the, the size is or every department, marketing, supply chain, however you want to call it, has their little tribe. So how do you trigger that one to create one tribe? I wouldn't even think that we want to create one tribe. Um, we don't want to make people all homogeneous. Mm, mm -hmm. As we as individuals are different, and our differences, when they come together, um, well, we create more than if we were all clones of each other. So... Mm, Also, groups of people can be different. Um, let me use department names, but it's not always departments. Yeah? Because if, say, supply chain and marketing sit on the same floor, 
they would mingle with each other just naturally, more often, because they meet at the water coolers when they go out for lunch or maybe in the Friday after work, they go out together. They would also mingle more easily than they mingle with people on the other floor. It's okay if the supply chain people tick in a certain way, say they are more data-driven or whatever, right? Uh, they they are Excel gurus or they cherish Excel gurus and the marketing people uh, pay more attention to um, the wording and maybe as they need to have a good appearance to the outside world, they pay more attention to their own appearance um, and so on and so forth. So I think that is okay to allow these sub-tribes to form and I wouldn't even try to steer that. I would try to understand from, let me use this term from a leadership perspective, well, what is our common ground? What is our platform? So what is it when I ask those supply chain and those marketing people, what do they tell me what our purpose is? Um, why are we here? What are we doing? Sure, we are making money, but beyond that, what is our purpose here on planet Earth? Um, and if there they have a similar answer, like, well, I'm serving sandwiches here to people on a rush from A to B, and many of them just want a nice companion on a boring commute. Yeah, um, if I get such an answer from the sandwich stand at the train station, that is good. And I, if I have a similar answer, Pragmatic, similar answer in everyday language from people from different departments. Then it's perfectly okay if they form their tribes, their little subcultures, um, if they feel different from the others, but together they achieve that bigger goal. I agree. Together they achieve that goal. And that reminded me of an organization where common ground was more difficult to find because on one side you had sales who obviously uh, in this case was working a bit independently from the logistics and the scientists behind it behind the sales department and it was very difficult to find a common ground because sales was like my objective and only my sole objective is to sell and the engineers on the other side were saying we really have a difficult time supporting the client because we are not involved enough how do you find common ground when the objectives might differ hmm. And we see that a lot in organizations that mm. objectives are not aligned. I even myself, when I joined industry in the early 2000s, saw that and found that interesting. And I found it even clever because I thought, mm. oh, somehow this is like an evolution, right? You set somewhat competing goals and then. Well, survival of the fittest, to put it in brutal terms, makes sure that uh, the best ideas and concepts win. 
maybe there is something to that, to that kind of internal competition. But still, it's friction. Still, it's energy invested into aspects that are not producing value for the outside world. And that is what the organization should be for. So um, maybe so long on, on the idea that it's there. And some people think it it is good to have that. Some internal competition mm. is good. Yeah, I have myself subscribed to that idea. And I just think now that it creates too much waste, too much friction and loss of energy and focus. So how would that be done? I think mm, the... One aspect to notice in many organizations, sales is really the sharp point of where the organization can address the problem. When you are a really inquisitive, curious salesperson, you hear verbatim from the customer what they want. Uh, you get this original language and I think I can name the company here, John Deere. I have worked with John Deere. John Deere takes these verbatim statements, use some innovation tools to untangle what is the jobs that these customers try to get done, then take these jobs that the customer tries to get done, translate that into a functional language, so to say, into our engineering language. But this translation exercise between the salespeople, what they hear, and um, the engineering people who, so to say, look at a tractor more from a functional perspective, well, that is teamwork, where these mm -hmm. two teams need to, need to meet. So the moment when your salespeople on the one side and your engineering people on the other side have figured out um, that it's in our work together here that we can really solve the problem. That is the moment where, well, you can also build this common culture. And true, when you build this common culture, one aspect of change is that there are always some incentives in place that keep you back in the old behavior. I think it is mistake number five or so by John Cotter, uh, who said there are eight mistakes you can make. And if I count well, it's number five that there are these old incentives. So with your example here, and well, my story from John Deere, true, if you tell the salespeople, you just, promise, 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 and then you chase the internal people so they deliver, deliver, deliver. It probably works for a while, but it turns into a straw fire real quick. If, on the other hand, you figure out, I understand this verbatim language from the customer. I can capture it. Um, I can also, if I have learned 
the language of innovation, I can translate that into jobs that the customer tries to get done. And then with together with the engineers, I translate that into functional language so we can build a tractor with it. Well, then it's a very different game. And just by working together in, oh, and I was saying game, working together in a playful way changes so much. Yeah, so he would be one aspect where I would love to see culture change in some organizations, like the example that you you just gave. Sales is here, engineering people are there, and somehow, unfortunately, they clash. Yeah, and actually, basically what you're saying is working on culture can really have a massive return on investment. And when we culture is not just people and it's not just something wishy-washy. And I just want to underline that because I often hear we just need to do it. Yet I think you have observed, proved and worked and seen that actually it is a massive return on investment. It is. It is. Like we said before, right, we are lacking skilled people and the skilled people who we have, they are disengaged. What a pity. Of course, you don't find that as a line item somewhere in your P&L. But when a culture rots, and it can, you Mm -hmm. see that in a quarter or two in the books, for sure. Also, when a culture improves, you see that in a quarter or two, maybe not in the books yet in the financial books, but you see that in your KPIs, at least in terms of engagement and how people work together, sick leave and all these things. I agree. And if an organization would say, We are in a place where we had already some restructuration done. Yet we do need to create a common ground. What is the best way to start? Is it to have someone like you come and assess? Is it, I mean, I've worked for two decades. I've seen consultants yet. I would like to ask you, restructuration has already happened. There is a common ground to create. What is your first suggestion? Hmm. That brings to mind, and I'm not naming the organization now, um, my start as a consultant. Before I had worked in corporate, and that was in 2009. And this was just after the crisis, and I was working with a logistics company. They had gone through a massive restructuring. Of course, there was not less work after that, because people were rather shipping around more parcels than before. And every year since, I think we, the world, has been shipping around more parcels than before. And yet, the were many people who had to leave the organization. So the very first thing to understand is probably, is there really, is there more to come? 
because people mm -hmm. are afraid. They may have lost trust in their in their uh, management. Maybe rightly so, maybe not, but it's often a trust thing. I didn't believe this was ever possible after my 22 years with this company that they fired my colleague. And it, it did happen. So step number one, is there more to come? It's a different game if there is, because we can't and we should not pretend it's all fine. If not, I think we need to acknowledge people's grief first mm. um, and see, well, where do we pick them up from? If the outsider or the insider or the guy from corporate is coming to that depot, that hub and telling people, hey, guys, it's all over. Now we are going to have fun together and here are the new targets and this is what we're going to do. And you might just completely miss, let's say, the tone and the manners that these people expect in, in that moment. So if there was restructuring and painful restructuring, and very often restructuring is painful for people, even if I just need to take my chair and go to the office next door, um, I would start by understanding the grief side of it and make sure that there's not more to come. Because if there is, we need to deal with that situation as well. I agree. And I thank you totally. Let's lay first uh, the emotions on the table and then we can go to the assessment. And there was something you mentioned in a separate discussion we had with the mastermind, which was a cheat sheet, which is really useful. And the fact that there are three elements on which you build culture. And this is a model you refer to often uh, from Edgar Schein. Could you explain here, share for the audience, what are those three elements and how those three elements really benefit mm. for the wor work culture? True, and thank you for bringing this up because maybe for some people what we've talked so far was very general and here is something where I hope they can take something really practical away from our conversation. Yeah, you, you said Edgar Schein and I like and recommend his work. It's easy to read. There are interviews with him that have deeply impressed me. Um, He also advises people to really develop the skill to listen to others. He calls this the humble inquiry, so that's a Googleable term. And he has worked a lot on culture and what is culture. And of course, he is not alone. Uh, if you ask ChatGPT, I did not, but if you ask ChatGPT these days, give me five different models uh, for culture, you would probably find, get as many. If you ask for 10, you would probably also get 10. Um, Edgar Schein's model for me is very appealing because I can remember it. It has just three layers. And for all three layers, um, all three layers help me to watch out and observe better. And that is what is so interesting. So he says, when you 
come into a place and you want to understand how they tick, what their culture is. Look at these three elements. Um, first, look at artifacts. So all the stuff that you can shoot pictures of. Second, look at their behaviors. How do people behave when they meet, when they enter a room, uh, when they deal with each other and so on? And then, well, try to untangle the worldviews that this place has. So these are the three levels. And for me, it was and is eye-opening to walk in somewhere and say, hey, what artifacts do I see here? Ah, this is an interesting behavior. And mm -hmm, what I hear here or what I read there displays a certain worldview. And artifacts, because it's, they are so obvious, is obviously the first and easiest to observe, right? It is what jumps to our eyes when we have trained ourselves to watch out for them. Mm. Yeah, maybe one mm. example. So I've been invited to Qingdao, uh, a place in China, mm, to help a team, a development team, a research and development team, um, well, upskill themselves in terms of innovation. And, um, well, we all know that when we walk into an, a company, there is this gigantic entrance hall, uh, especially in China, very often. Uh, they are really impressive. And, well, that is already an artifact, right? The entrance hall. It speaks of they want to convey a certain image to the outside world. This is us. Yeah. You walk in here. Now you are in our place and this is us. So, well, next time, maybe if you like, uh, walk into an entrance hall and look for artifacts and try to untangle. Well, what do they, what's the image they want to convey about themselves to the outside world? So here in this entrance hall, while I was waiting to be picked up, I saw some uh, glass cabinets, like you know them from museums. And I was walking over there, and they had meticulously hung up all the patents that they had published. So you would have the paper copy of the patent attached. Below it said, um, Submit it then and then. Well, you could also read it. Some some little explanation about that patent, really like in a museum. That it was just not a gemstone or something. It was a patent, and there were all these cabinets. And well, what does that mean? It means well, these are just theories, right? When you see that, you can just build theories, hypotheses, and you would try to validate them later. But my hypothesis here was, okay, so this is what they value. We create intellectual property. We are other theory. Uh, we are not measuring our success in terms of how well we pleased our boss or mm. how timely we submitted our weekly reports or 
whatever else, right? Our metric of success here is, did I get my, paper, my patent approved? How many, many patents have I signed? Um, and so on. So things like these. What does that mean if you walk in as a consultant? Well, it's very good to have spotted that. I was happy to have spotted that. Because you can talk about innovation in so many ways. Yeah, that it's a thing about the mindset and so on and so forth. Well, these guys wanted to know my theory. They wanted to know how do I write better patents and how can I write more patents faster? <laughs> and that was indeed their question. And I think, so thank you. And I think when you said indeed for a trained eye, the first of the three pillars, right? The artifacts can be seen that already means and it doesn't mean that we are not competent. It just means we can come in this company and maybe not be, as you say, as trained or already focused because we got a call. It's about strategy or focused. We got a call. It's about team building. We can already have a preconceived image and overview, overlook and not see the artifacts. Yet I'm thinking that's number one, but two behaviors and worldviews. That's even more difficult to capture. Yeah, it is at first view. Mm -hmm. Maybe, Laurence, I start with the world views because you notice them immediately when they clash. <laughs> yeah, uh, of course, that is not the moment when we want to notice them. But then it's very clear that you and I, we have different worldviews when our worldviews clash. So this is why we'd like to be alert to these things up front, that we listen what people talk about, that maybe one person has uh, that theory in mind. People, by their very nature, are lazy. They don't work. I need to kick them. I need to track uh, what they are doing. I need to check whether they are back in time from their lunch break. If I don't do that, well, they are going to extend their lunch break forever. Some people might have that theory. Theory X, by the way. Um, Daniel McGregor has come up with a term. It's a theory about how human beings are. Uh, maybe I comment on that in a minute. And that would clash maybe with you and my worldview where we think, hey, no matter how people tick in uh, the company, they are motivated. You go to their home and you see they have a wonderful garden, perfectly well maintained, or they take so much care of their children, or they uh, of, of their dog or whatever that is, right? Uh, so the other worldview would be, um, I need to figure out how I can motivate these people. How do can I create that platform so that they come to work and get inspired by being there? So if we had these worldviews, they would clash. And the thing is, we want to figure that out earlier. And just by knowing that culture differs in worldviews and individuals with their worldview influence the local culture a lot, 
For just by understanding that, you pay attention, you listen more carefully, and you notice before things clash. I think the word carefully indeed is so important. Yet I believe when people are stressed, they would snap faster. I think that happens. And that's why I believe in external views, because um, as much as it is important to have our own compass, because we need to work with the teams on a daily basis when we're an organization, I really see the advantage of having an external view because it's easy to overlook when there is a deadline, when we're under pressure and when there was just a restructuration. So you mentioned artifacts, you mentioned the worldview and then behaviors. Is it easy to identify when you're in it? You can see certain things immediately. Well, let me make one. Two, let me make two examples here. So, Qingdao again. You're invited to to dinner, and maybe you have seen that they often have these round tables, meaning there is no head of the table. Uh, everyone is seated around a round table and then there is a huge plate in the middle and you can turn that around and take things. So everyone is sitting and you better observe the behavior of the others because nobody starts eating even though food is just in front of them. So by just alerting yourself to constantly watch behaviors, you would notice, oh, there's an interesting uh, behavior. They have food in front of them and nobody starts eating. Why? Because somebody is expected to open the dinner. So you would have, or just by observing, yeah, you don't need to learn that um, or read that in a book, when in China do this, when in China don't do that. You just observe what people are doing around you. So it's very valuable to have trained your mind to observe behaviors. Let me give you a day-to-day -day behavior for people in France that they don't even notice they have, where I think we in Germany could learn a lot. So when I walk into an office in France, I see that behavior a lot. People, when they walk in the office, they say, hey, good morning, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine. What about you? Yeah, I'm also fine. And then next person. Everyone in the office is important enough for me to be greeted personally, at least once a day. I talk to this person. And if there were anything, like, ah, Laurence, yeah, um, can I talk to you later? You would say, sure, sure, and then greet all that already the next person. Um, so this little behavior, this little ritual that some Germans sometimes make fun of is very valuable because you show a minimum level of respect to everyone. You give everyone this two seconds of opportunity to say, hey, by the way, I'd like to talk to you later. And that is so helpful. 
you would be perceived as really rude in France if you did it, let me put it in these stereotypic terms, in my German way, to go into my office, hang my coat over my chair, fire up my computer and dive into my first conference call. You would be very rude. That would be non-acceptable. You show up early enough so you can say good morning to everyone. That That is a good one. And it's true that when you're not used to it, you indeed wonder why everyone wastes so much time. If you're not used to it, it looks like a lot of time and energy is put for that, right? So this is when you see indeed... Um, when you take the time to just observe without judging. And I think it's not easy when you're in a rush again. I think we can all have the capacity when we're in a more relaxed pace. I think it becomes more delicate if there is a deadline coming soon or we are jet lagged or we are just joining a company and there is a former company who had a very different culture. Is there, you mentioned sometimes the term speed reader culture. To conclude, is there any element you would recommend, considering, again, we are not necessarily in a calm, relaxed state. Uh, people come and go from between meetings, travels, uh, they are jet lagged. So how could we speed read a culture? Hmm. And that speed reading thing is important yeah, when you are the new kid on the block. Mm -hmm. It happens a lot to the consultant. <laughs> you come to a new place, to a completely new organization, and um, you make your life so much easier if you understand quickly what the local, well, understand, if you build your first hypothesis quickly, what the local culture might look like. So that is where I like a lot this model that uh, Edgar Scheine has developed by saying, I keep my eyes open for artifacts. I may see, I just give another example, I may see that there are two double-sized parking lots just next to the entrance of the building. So just by seeing that, I know, okay, so someone here is really important. Um, it's not in all organizations mm -hmm. that the boss has a double-sized parking lot. Sometimes they just park where everybody else parks. But, well, when you see that, you understand just by walking in, somehow power might play a role in this organization. You watch out for the behaviors when you are in meetings, when you are in your first meeting. You would see, well, how do they greet newcomers? Am I in my laptop waiting for the meetings to start? Somebody comes and I do just this and I continue here or would I stand up? So. You see these little behaviors, they give you first clues. And it's not that I think we can ever develop a catalog. You see this, is, it means that. But um, we can train our own brain. And maybe in the taxi to that uh, appointment, maybe in the elevator, 
there's always a moment to recalibrate and say, watch out for these things. It's very important that you understand quickly what or how this organization might tick so that you are pay attention with the choices of your words um, mm. and so on. Yeah, This is why it's so important for me, the grid that I use to yeah, reading. I, I use the term, you're right, but it's a bit arrogant to say I am reading. I build hypotheses about the place and I try to do that fast so that I can behave in a way that um, doesn't infringe, so to say, uh, their culture or any person's feelings. Thank you. So we covered what is, and that's a massive topic, and another time we will cover, uh, in a separate uh, later time, we will cover governance, yet I really wanted to underline why work culture is so important. We covered also what happens when there was a restructuration, the importance to address, is there any follow-up? Is there a second restructuration happening to make sure to address the pain that actually work culture supports and really helps increase the revenue and that the three steps from Edgar Schein in terms of artifacts, behaviors, and worldview, those three steps really make a difference. And obviously for that, uh, we need to have a keen eye and uh, have give ourselves the space to observe. Is there anything else you would like to add as a conclusion? Hmm. Yeah, I think just one comment, because we started out with that, we talked about change and we said there may be some reluctance or a perceived reluctance in organizations or with people uh, to change because they want to protect their culture. Mm. And then we say, ah, it's so hard to change a culture. Well, with these little things that we have discussed, like the behaviors, I stand up when a new person enters the room and I greet that person personally, even though I have an important email in front of me. If I say, um, I behave differently, if I find five or six people who just do the same and who radiate that, well, then even a so say not so powerful individual can set in motion change in a culture. So if you feel uneasy in the place where you are and you can nail this down to, especially to behaviors, well, you can start it. It needs you and your example. It needs um, five followers who copy and apply what you do. And you can indeed change those elements in a culture that you don't like and protect the other many that are so valuable to you and to the success also in the marketplace. 
Thank you. I think this is really valuable because as you say, already you and five people will make a difference. I will make sure in the show notes for anyone who wants to know more. Uh, so Michael Oler, I'm going to put from Exidium, I'm going to put um, the contact. So again, thank you so much. This was so valuable. And I look forward in the upcoming months with Ines <laughs> to have you uh, and discuss about governance because it looks like such a dry topic and yet it is not. And again, it helps the people, it helps the bottom line, it helps so many other uh, elements in the organization. So bye for now and thank you, Michael. Thank you, Laurence, and very much looking forward to that.